0: Church, please join me from a reading from John 13. It was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave the world and to go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The evening meal was in progress, and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Very truly I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. A new command I give you, love one another, as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
1: You can take your seats. Let's take just a moment to pray together. Father, we give you thanks that you are a God who has not remained silent, and you have not kept us guessing what you are like, but you have revealed yourself to us through your Son and through your Word, and so we pray that you would give us eyes to see right now. I pray that you would meet us wherever we find ourselves in this room this morning. Some of us walk through these doors utterly convinced of the things that we've been reading and singing and praying, and others of us come utterly unconvinced, wondering if we could ever believe these things. Some of us come having once believed, wondering if we could ever believe again. Father, some of us are here this morning and we just need some words of hope in our life. Or maybe we need words of peace or words that can cure our sadness and our mourning, or our despair, or our boredom. God, we are all over the place, and yet we're all in the same place, which is we need you to speak into our lives. And so we pray that you would do that now, and we ask all this in your Son's name. Amen. Well, good morning. Uh, we are in a four-week series called, What is a Christian? And, uh, you know, let me just say this. If If the claims of Christianity are true, this is the most important question you will ever ask and you will ever answer. And I think what's interesting about this question is that if you you stood outside of our church any day of the week and you asked a hundred people walking by this question, you'd probably get about a hundred different answers. What is a Christian? Some would say, oh, a Christian is a religious person. Or a Christian is a moral person or a Christian is a nice person or a Christian is a conservative person. What we have been seeing in this series is that a Christian is a loved person. That's what it means to be a Christian. The essence of being a Christian is that you have experienced God's unconditional and unwavering love for you All because of what Jesus has done for you. Now now think about this. What would change in your life and in my life if we actually believe that? What would change if you actually believed that the creator of heaven and earth loves you? Everything would change. Everything would change. You would become someone who loves Jesus. You've been loved by him and so you love him. That's what we talked about last week. You'd become someone who loves the world. That's next week. And you would become someone who loves the church, and that's this week. Now, when I say the church, I'm not talking about this building, although I do love this building. I love this building, I love everything about this building, except for that stained glass right up there. (laughs) Science and health. Some of you get so thrown off by that every week. You're like, holy, okay, the way, the truth and life, I can dig that. Holy Bible, I get that. Science and health. I mean, we are, I love science. (laughs) We are pro-health. It's just not, it's not really what we would have put on a stained glass. I didn't build this building, okay? When I say the church, I'm not talking about buildings. I'm talking about people, which is what Jesus is talking about in this Passage. Look at verse 34 and verse 35. He says, A new command I give you, love one another, and by this everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Now that those two words, one another, are shorthand in the New Testament for Christians. Those words show up over a hundred times, and about sixty of those times, they are specific commands about how Christians are to relate. To one another. And here's what Jesus is saying the distinguishing mark of a disciple, that means a Christian. What is a Christian? The distinguishing mark of a Christian is love for other Christians. There's a story that's been passed down in Christian tradition, and it's about the Apostle John. And the story is that when John was very old, He was he was pastoring kind of at the very end of his life. He was pastoring a church in Ephesus, and every week they would carry him into the pulpit. That's how old he was. They would carry him into the pulpit, and then he would preach a one-sentence sermon. Some of you are like, "Hey, how about that? Let's let's do that kind of sermon." Sorry, you need to go find another church. I can't fit it all into one sentence. He would preach. The same one-sentence sermon every week. You ready for this? Here is a sermon. Little children, let us love one another. And then they would carry him back out of the pulpit. And and kind of as the story goes, John was asked, Why do you preach, why do you only preach that one sentence? And what he said was, It is the Lord's command. If we did this one thing, it would be enough. It would be enough. Well, enough for what? Look at verse 35 again. Jesus says, by this love, by your love for one another, everyone will know, everyone will know, you are my disciples. This is almost too much what Jesus is saying. He is saying that the quality of our love for one another, will be enough for a watching world to know that our lives have been truly transformed by him. Now that's a challenging thought. To think that that people who do not know Jesus would look inside the church at the way we love one another and say, these, these people have really been changed by this. That's a challenging thought. Here's something even more challenging. Francis Schaeffer wrote this little book called The Mark of a Christian. And it's it's really it's about 20 pages long. won't take you long to read. And the whole book is on verses 34 and 35 of John chapter 13. And in this book, Schaeffer calls love the final apologetic. You know, The word apologetic means to make a defense. So when we think about apologetics, we think about kind of rational arguments um, or evidence that refutes people's intellectual objections to Christianity. And we think, let me just say this, we think that, that speaking to those questions is a very important thing. We try to do that every week here. It's why we are having a Questioning Christianity class today after the service. If you were seeking, if you were exploring Christianity, let me encourage you to come. But what Francis Francis Schaeffer says is that what Jesus is saying in these two verses, verse 34 and 35, is that the ultimate evidence for the veracity of Christianity it is, is not found in our evidence, it's not found in our arguments, but it is found in the quality of our love for one another. And this is what he says. He says, as Christians, we must have an intellectual apologetic. The Bible commands it and Christ exemplifies it. Yet, without Christians loving one another, Christ says the world cannot be expected to listen, even when we give good answers. We must never forget that the final apologetic which Jesus gives is the observable love Christians have for one another. It's challenging. It's challenging because it means if people are turning away from Christianity, which they are, it means that the place that we have to start is actually by looking in at ourselves and the quality of our relationships with one another. And it also means that there ought to be something so magnetic, I mean so compelling, so attractive about our love for one another, that people who do not believe what we believe actually want to be a part of this. I mean, doesn't that, it's, it's amazing what Jesus is saying about what this love should actually do outside the walls of this church. And so, you know, thinking about this this week, I thought, this should make us curious about this love. What, What does it look like? And the beauty of this passage is that Jesus does not just tell us, but he actually shows us. When he says in verse 34, love one another as I have loved you. Think about this. This is, Jesus has been with his disciples for three years. They've watched him do all sorts of things in his public ministry. But when he says, love one another as I've loved you, he's not talking about the last three years in general. He is talking about something very in particular. He's talking about what has just happened in the foot washing in verses 1 through 17. And this is why he says in verse 15, I have set an example that you should do as I have done for you, So what Jesus is doing in this foot washing is he's setting an example for us of what our love for one another should look like. And he shows us three things. I came up with about eight, but we've only got time for three. He shows us three things. That this love, it's a kneeling love. It's a washing love. And it's a gracious love. It's a kneeling love, it's a washing love, and it's a gracious love. All right. It's a kneeling love. Let me set the scene for just a moment. Jesus is eating a meal with his disciples, but this is not just any meal. This is his last meal. And he is about to go to the cross. And verse 3 is really interesting because it gives us a window into what is going on inside Jesus' head in this moment. Look at verse 3. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power under his power, meaning Jesus' power, and that he had come from God and that he was returning to God. So in these last moments, you know, just before Jesus is going to the cross, what is he thinking about? He's thinking about his greatness. He's thinking about his power. He's thinking about his deity. He's come from God. He's returning to God. He is God. Have you ever had the experience of being in a social setting with someone who is convinced that they are the most powerful person in the room. You know, that they're the most significant, the most influential, uh, the, 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 the most, the, the wisest, the most accomplished. It is not a fun experience. It's not a fun experience. You can't get an edge, uh, a word in edgewise. You know, any story that you tell, they think that they have a, a better story to tell. You know, Brian Regan has. A, he's a comedian. He has a joke about this. He's like, you know, he calls these me monsters, people who just love talking about themselves. You know, so if you if you tell the story about the time you had your 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 two wisdom teeth removed, they're going to tell you about their four wisdom teeth that got removed. It's not a fun experience. You you just kind of live in their shadow. They expect everyone to just kind of admire them and serve them, and we all do this, by the way. I mean, there's something about the human condition that makes us constantly aware of kind of where we fall on the social hierarchy in almost every social situation, and we're, we're kind of constantly looking to see how we could leverage it to kind of our own benefit. You see, but what does Jesus do in this moment of being very aware of his own greatness and his own power and his own worthiness. What does he do? He does not use it to his advantage. Look at verse 4. So he got up. Very next verse. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that, would have, that was wrapped around him. Now, this would have shocked everyone in the room to see Jesus start washing people's feet because foot washing was something that was reserved for only the lowest slaves, the people who were at the very bottom rung of the social ladder. You know, and to do this, Jesus would have literally had to get on his knees. I mean, they're, they're, they're eating a meal, but in the first century... You know, you didn't sit around tables like we sit around today. You didn't have chairs. Tables were low to the ground. So you reclined when you ate. Which means that Jesus had to literally get on his knees to wash their feet. Jesus was not just the most powerful person in the room. He was the most powerful person in the universe in this moment. And he knew it. And yet, what does he do? He says... I, you don't serve me, I serve you. And what we learn here is this, is that we learn that loving one another means serving one another. Paul puts it this way in Philippians 2. He says, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to, be gra- something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant. So let me just, a couple questions here for us as a church, okay? What if you came to church on a Sunday morning, not simply to get a message or kind of an uplifting experience, But what if you came because you believed that God had someone here for you to love and serve and care for? What what kind of witness might we have in our city if our operating principle as a community was a willingness to be inconvenienced for one another, to extend ourselves, to go out of our way for one another, to show up in one another's homes, and one another's lives when we're suffering. To simply be present with people in their tears. What if that was our operating principle? You know, by the way, there are stories of this happening in our church. I want to celebrate this a little bit this morning. There are stories of, of, of people who are showing up at the houses of young moms who are in need of a break, from child care, to lend their time. There are, there are people in this church who feel isolated and alone and they have no family and they're being invited into people's homes to be a part of their family. There are people who are being cared for in their time of need. But you see, church is not simply meant to be a place that you go to worship. It is meant to be a community in which you, you, you give yourself to. And this is why you hear us talk so much about community groups, because this really is the context in which a lot of this happens. See, to love one another is to serve one another. Now, when we think of love, serving is not one of the first words that comes to mind. When Jesus thinks of love, it is the first word that comes to mind. It's a kneeling love. Second, it's a washing love, because Jesus doesn't just get down on his knees but he gets down on his knees and he washes feet now whenever I I think about this scene of Jesus washing feet it reminds me of a wedding I officiated one time where the bride and groom washed one another's feet and let me just tell you that this this groom had particularly hairy feet he had he had hobbit feet okay like very furry okay And do you know how hard it is to get a sock back on someone else's foot when it's kind of damp and hairy? It takes, well, I'll tell you this, when you're officiating a wedding, it feels like it's taking an eternity. It took forever. And you know, I kind of laugh about it because no no one that was there at that wedding was thinking in that moment, wow, look how they love one another. They were all thinking, wow, this is this is really awkward. Is she ever going to get that sock back on? You know, and, and you know, I, I joke about this because I think that, that most of us, we, we don't really understand the significance of what Jesus is doing here in this moment in this foot washing. You know, in the first century, in a dry and dusty and arid climate where people walked everywhere. In shoes. You know, you didn't have Uggs. I mean, shoes were like leather strips around your feet. And they walked in streets that had no sanitation. Your your feet were the most unclean part of your body. Which, Which this whole idea of clean and unclean is actually one of the major themes that runs throughout the Bible. The Bible says that we were made clean, not in a, not in a physical sense, but in a, in a spiritual sense. We were without spot. We were without blemish. We, we had glory. But then sin entered in, and it left a stain. And no matter how much we try to deny that it is there, we are all like, we're all like Lady Macbeth, saying, out damn spot. We, we have this deep sense that something is not right about us. And you see, when Jesus tells Peter that he must wash his feet, you know what he's saying? He's saying, Peter, I have got a vision for your life. And I want to see you washed. I want to see you beautiful. I want to see you glorious. I want to see what you will be like when all of the dirt and the stain is gone. That's what love is. Now think about how different that is from the way that our culture talks about love. One of the things that we say about love is that love is tolerance. Love is accepting everyone just the way they are. But I want you to notice this. Jesus does not look at Peter and say, your feet are dirty, but it's okay. He says, I must wash you. See, culture says love is tolerance, but Jesus says love is washing. Here's something else culture says about love. It says that love is about your happiness. It's about your self-actualization. It's about your self-fulfillment. It's about finding someone who completes you and fills you. And what Jesus is saying here is that love is not about your happiness. It is actually about another person's holiness, one another's holiness. It means having a vision for other people's cleansing, for their radiance, for their glory, for them becoming more and more the person that God made them to be. So again, just a a couple questions for us here as a church, a couple applications. First, Jesus, Jesus has a vision for what we might be who we might become, and he is helping us towards that. And so the question is, do we have a vision for what one another might be, and are we helping each other towards that? See, who in this body, who in this family, if you're part of this church, who are you encouraging? Who are you praying for? Who are you building up? Who are you being intentional with? Whose life Are you speaking into? And who is speaking into your life? Who are you holding accountable? And and who, who are you accountable to? Here's another application. This requires incredible balance of love and truth. See, truth without love is not love. It just causes us to speak into one another's lives in such a way that we we can't hear it. It's like a blinding sun. It's harsh. It's overbearing. It's not helpful. It's not loving. But you see, love without truth is not love either. See, why, why are you afraid to say hard things to people that you know well in this church? Why do you struggle? Why do I struggle? Why do we struggle to be honest with one another about the stains that we see in one another and the ways that each of us needs to grow? I'll tell you why. Because we want people to like us. In other words, we, we actually love ourselves more than we love one another. And this is why we, we don't do well speaking into one another's lives. See, and you got to have truth and love. It's both. Some of us, we're great at the truth part. We're like, yes, I'm ready to bring down the hammer on people. And others of us, we are great at the love part, but we need both. It's both. Here's the last application on this. Washing love means that you will get dirty. Washing love means that you will get dirty. So I have uh, three kids. I'm out of the diapers stage. Praise God. Never thought that day would come. It is here and it is glorious. And I just want to tell all of you young parents who are not out of it, that it is coming. It is coming. But I will tell you, one of the things I remember about changing diapers is that there were moments where it was kind of like going to war with your kid. Like changing diapers, it, it, got, it got pretty ugly because you're just trying to help, but for some reason they think you know, you're trying to hurt them. And so they're rolling around and they're screaming and they're kicking. And you know what happens in the process of changing a dirty diaper sometimes? You get dirty. In order for them to get clean, you have to get dirty. Here's what love means. It means getting into other people's mess. It means that you move towards people in their brokenness and in their complexity and in their pain and in their neediness. It means loving them before they are lovable, before they are cleaned up or fixed up. Love means washing. And here's the last point. It's a gracious love. So we've looked at what Jesus has done. Let's talk for just a moment about who he has done it to, whose feet he has knelt, knelt down at, and whose feet He is washed, and John is very intentional here by the way. He he wants us to see who is present. Now, first of all, all the disciples are there. This is is the last night of Jesus's life. They're in the upper room. All the disciples are present, but two of them are named. Who's the first? Judas. Verse, Verse two, Judas is there. You know, the one who betrays Jesus. And what's so interesting about this account is that there is no indication as Jesus goes around and he's washing the disciples' feet that he comes to to Judas and he says, sorry, not you. And you know what? The same, who's the second one named? Peter. The one who denies him. And, And Jesus doesn't skip over his feet either. See, one betrays Him, one denies Him, and all will ultimately fail and hurt Him. And Jesus knows all of this, and yet He kneels and He washes their feet. Now here's what we learn in this. Love, our love for one another, means forgiveness. And I want you to know, there may not be anything more powerful to outsiders, to a watching world, to those who don't believe what we believe, then forgiveness. We skip right over this, but this is so important. There is such power in forgiveness. Malcolm Gladwell, who's a well-known author and journalist, he tells a story of how he came back to Christianity later in life. He was raised in a very devout Christian home, but he but he walked away from it in his adult years. And he said that all of that changed when he met a woman named Wilma Dirksen. He was was working on a book and he went to, to, uh, to Winnipeg, Canada to interview Wilma. And here's why, 30 years before, her teenage daughter Candace had disappeared on the way home from school. It was one of the most massive manhunts launched in Winnipeg history. They looked for a week, and then they found Candace's body about a quarter of a mile from the family's home. She had been brutally murdered. Her funeral was followed by a news conference. And it was a huge story, so you had all these news outlets that were there, and at this news conference, the, 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 the question that was asked to Wilma and her husband was, how do you feel about, who, about whoever did this to Candace? And this, is, this is what was their response. They said, we would like to know who did this so that we could share a love that seems to be missing in their lives. They're Christians. And writing about that encounter, Gladwell said this. He said, who says that? Who has the ability to say that after your daughter was brutally murdered? Who has the ability to care about the murderer? I had rejected the faith until I met Wilma Dirksen and it changed me forever. What is it that's going to win people to Jesus? It is not arguments and it is not evidence. And it is not sermons, but it is forgiveness. It is the way that we, as the body of Christ, at Resurrection Oakland, work out our differences. We are called to radical forgiveness with one another. I want you to think about this. Here's what Jesus is saying in this passage. He's saying that in the church, you'll be hurt. You'll be hurt inside the church. And I'm not not talking about abuse. This is something we, we never tolerate as a church. I'm talking about relational conflict. You see, sometimes we're surprised when we're hurt inside the church. That's the moment we want to leave the church. But Jesus is saying, no, 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 that is actually the moment we can be the church. Because we can handle conflict and pain in a way that is totally countercultural. That rather than severing love and relationship, these can actually become moments where we deepen love and relationship. See, the church, the mark of the church is not that we are perfect people. No, no. It's that we are gracious people, we are merciful people. People, we're forgiving people. Extending forgiveness is one of the ways that we love one another. And guess what? So is seeking forgiveness. I mean, that's the other side of the coin. You know, in in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter five, Jesus says this. He says, if you're offering your gift at the altar, meaning you're in worship, you're in church, and you remember that your brother or sister has something against you. He says, leave your gift, go and find them and be reconciled. And I want you to notice, Jesus does not say, if if you've got something against your brother or sister, he says, if your brother or sister has something against you, meaning the onus is always on you, you're responsible to seek and to pursue forgiveness as well as to give it. And so here's the question, who in this community do you need to forgive? Forgive? And who in this community do you need to seek forgiveness from? Who has hurt you? And who have you hurt? And let me tell you, if, 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 if I'm in that answer, if I've hurt you, come talk to me. This is what we do as Christians. We reconcile And it is one of the ways that Jesus shows the world that his people are different, that our love is different. And you say, well, I don't know, I don't know if I want to do this. I don't know if I want to love like this. This is hard. Yes, love is hard. And if it isn't hard, then it is not love, at least the kind of love that Jesus is talking about. Because love requires you to become vulnerable. It it opens you up to disappointment. It it opens you up to pain, actually. This is what C.S. Lewis says. He says, there is no safe investment. To love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything, and your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly be broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give your heart to no one. Wrap it carefully around with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your own selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken, but it will become unbreakable, impenetrable, and irredeemable. Love is hard. So I I don't know... I don't know if I, if I want to do this. I don't know if I can do this. I mean, how, how do I love like this? Let me tell you, if we ended this sermon right now, prayed and went home, this would not be a Christian sermon. It wouldn't. You say, wait, we've been, we've been talking about Jesus and His love and how we're supposed to love one another and how Jesus is our example. We should be like Him. That's not a Christian sermon. If Jesus is nothing more than your example, then you have not understood Christianity. If Jesus is just your example, he will crush you because the love that we have been talking about today, we all fail at. How often do we seek to be served rather than serve? How often do we prioritize our own happiness over another person's growth or holiness? How often do we have an imbalance in love and truth? How often are we slow to forgive and quick to hold grudges? See, if Jesus is just your example, and if you know yourself at all, he will crush you. You see, here's the point. Before you can give this kind of love, you have to receive it. It's kind of like being a philanthropist. You know, what is a philanthropist? A philanthropist is someone who has so much money over here that they can give away so much money over there. You've got to have some sort of an account, some sort of infinite resource of love that you can draw on in order to show it and to give it. And that's true not just for you, by the way. That's true for Jesus. I mean, look at this passage. What resource does he draw on? Well, I say, wait a minute, Jesus is God. God is love. He doesn't need a resource. Look, look at verse 3 again. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and that he was returning to God. And so he got up and he kneeled and he washed. And love What is this talking about, that Jesus knew he'd come from God and he knew he's returning to God? It's talking about his union with the Father. It's talking about how loved he knew, he knew he was by the Father, that he had a home with the Father, and that is what enabled him to love. And you see, if Jesus, if he needed a resource to love, if he loved, because he knew how loved he was, then how much more do we? And so where do I get a resource like that? Verse 34, the key to the whole passage. Miss this and you miss everything that Jesus is saying. Miss this and you will constantly live in guilt and disappointment with yourself. If you're at all honest with yourself about how much you fail to love, don't miss this. Verse 34, as I have loved you, so you must love one another. Before you can love like Jesus, you must be loved by Jesus. And that is what we find at this table. We find a God who did not just make himself vulnerable, but he made himself killable. He became a human and he didn't just become a human, but he became a servant and he didn't just kneel, but he was nailed to a cross where he took all of our stain and all of our sin and all of our guilt and all of our shame so that we could be washed, so we could be glorious, so we could be beautiful in God's sight. See, and he did it all because of love. All because of love. Before you can love like Jesus, you have to be loved by Jesus. And that is the offer to you and me this morning at this table. And it is the offer that we so desperately need. And it comes to you freely, friends. It's not because you've worked hard. It's not because you've loved well this week. Jesus has seen us in all of the ways that we have failed to love, and He has seen all of the ways that we are unlovely, and He knows every part of your life. He knows every secret that you keep from other people, even those closest to you. He knows your biggest sources of shame and regret. And He does not turn away from you, but He offers Himself to you in love. On the night in which He was betrayed, The Lord Jesus took bread, and after he'd given thanks, he broke it, and he said, this is my body given for you. Eat this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup, and he blessed it, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. The Apostle Paul tells us that as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks and praise for the love that you have for us in and through and all because of your Son. And I pray that for every single person in this room this morning that we would taste it and touch it and see it and eat it and drink it right now. And some of us, we've, we've never tasted it. We've never known a love like this. May it become real to us this morning. Meet us at this table, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.